Hello, and welcome to a special NES 35th anniversary edition of Power Pros Podcast. We are back from hiatus, not to talk about what's currently going on in the world of Nintendo, but what happened 35 years ago, approximately. Regardless, I am your host, the Hoff, Chris Hoffman, and joining me on this occasion is my special guest co-host, Mark Deschamps, from the video game division of ComicBook.com. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, so I've been a Nintendo fan going back since I was about four years old, three, four years old, which would have been about 1988, 1989. So I grew up right there, kind of in the heat of the NES era, and it's meant a lot to me over the years. So it's uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, you were even editor-in-chief of Nintendojo, right? Yeah, yeah, I was the editor-in-chief of Nintendojo for a long time, and uh, now I'm uh, with Comic Book. Nintendojo's uh, still plugging along, doing great with their uh, current editor-in-chief, Robert Marujo, who's taken the reins, and uh, he, he seems to be doing great with it. So, still got that Nintendo passion, though, so uh, I'm still keeping the uh, flame alive uh, over at Comic Book. All right, cool. Well, I appreciate you joining me for this episode of the show. As regular listeners know, my previous podcast co-host Pete got launched into space last June, so I definitely appreciate you filling his shoes. But yeah, we are here for the 35th anniversary of the NES, which was actually a few months ago. It was October 2020 would have been the actual anniversary. So we're a little bit late, but you know we weren't going to let this opportunity totally slip by to celebrate the system's legacy. I mean, if Nintendo was still celebrating Super Mario Bros. 35th anniversary until the end of March, I figure, eh, we can still do it, even if we've already slipped into 2021. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if it's good enough for Nintendo, I think uh, I think it's good enough for us. Exactly. So, you know, back in October, I called the NES the system that started it all. And I still stand by that. I mean, obviously, it was not the first home game system or Nintendo's first foray into video gaming, but it was what turned Nintendo into a household name. The NES revived an industry that the world basically considered dead at that point and ushered in a brand new era of video games. It was a start of so many characters and franchises and gaming standards that are still beloved to this day and games that we're still playing and enjoying and passing on to new generations of players with systems like Switch and the Super Mario Game & Watch. And all that began with the NES and that is why I call this the system that started it all. Yeah, I totally have to agree with that. I mean, when you look at systems prior to the NES, they're not even on the same level. The games aren't on the same level. The hardware is not on the same level. It, it almost looks archaic comparatively. And the NES really kickstarted an era that's still going to, to this day. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. And, you know, without the NES, without games like Super Mario Brothers, I certainly never would have become a gamer or a Nintendo fan. And I sure as heck wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. Yeah, and uh, I wouldn't be here either. <laughs> so with that in mind, we are going to take a page from the 250th issue of Nintendo Power and celebrate that 35-year legacy with the 35 reasons we love the NES. You know, maybe give or take a few. Let's get to it. All right, so kicking this list off, numbers one through three, Super Mario Brothers 1, Super Mario Brothers 2, Super Mario Brothers 3, the Super Mario series, those are our first three reasons why we love the NES. This is obviously a no-brainer. These are all-time classics. Tell me, Mark, what would you say is your favorite out of these three games? 
honestly, it's like trying to pick, you know, my favorite child. I only have one child, but it would be <laughs> like trying to pick my favorite child if I had more than one child. I know what you mean. It's really difficult. I mean, if you look at it from a quality standpoint, it's really hard to argue against Super Mario Brothers 3. I mean, it it just, it still stands the test of time. It's a wonderful, beautiful game. The graphics hold up. The gameplay holds up. Mm-hmm. From a, a nostalgia standpoint, it's hard to compete with the original, though. I, I mean, the original Mario Brothers, it, it started at all. Yes. Man, it's a tough choice. I think I got to give Super Mario Brothers 3 the edge. Well, I'm glad you were able to pick something. I'm not so sure I can make an absolute decisive choice. But yeah, I mean, these are all amazing games. Super Mario Brothers 1 changed gaming as we know it. It had these amazing side-scrolling worlds that were full of wonder and secrets and pipes you could go down and invisible mushrooms and vines that led to secret passages in the sky and had like jumping physics before anyone knew what physics was in games and it just made it seem like anything could be possible in a video game it was so far ahead of everything else at the time and for its era at the time of its release i might say it is the best video game ever made when i look back at the original nes the the memory that sticks out to me the most would be playing the original Super Mario Brothers. It literally is one of the most distinctive early memories that I have from my childhood. (laughs) I remember not being able to move and jump at the same time. So that first (laughs) hole, I would just constantly die on. And my father would have to take, you know, the controller and get me past that hole and then, you know, past the next hole, you know, et cetera. Nice, nice. I was able to get past the hole on the first level, but on the second level, when you got to those moving platforms, oh man, that really did me. I mean, I think I was much older than you were when you first played it, but still, you know, just the concept of this was totally foreign to me, and so that gave me, you know, so much trouble. But yeah, beyond the first one, then we had Super Mario Brothers 2, and we're talking about the American version, of course. You know, it was a totally different type of game than the first Super Mario. It added so much personality to the Mario universe. Luigi became a distinct character, and the princess and Toad became playable for the first time. You know, it was so different, which of course has everything to do with it being a reskin of a completely unrelated game that came out in Japan. And you know, my mind was just totally blown the first time I played this game, and I jumped on the first enemy, and it didn't go squish. I was like, oh man, this is so weird, it's so different. But I saw that the game was super fun, and I thought it looked, you know, really, really good too. I think you hit the nail on the head with the fact that it really did kind of add this new layer to the Mario universe. You know, when I look back, a big part of my fandom came from the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, Mm. (laughs) which was loosely based on Super Mario Brothers 2. You know, a lot of the show's personality came from that game and just having, you know, Princess Toadstool at the time, now obviously now Peach. Right, right. You know, and Toad and Luigi as these major characters. And I think Super Mario Brothers 2 had a really major impact on Mario as a whole, despite the fact that it was Doki Doki Panic. Yeah, I think what to do with the characters might really be its most enduring legacy. Absolutely. But then after that, like you said, Super Mario Brothers 3 just really took all those concepts of the Mario universe, cranked them up to the next level. They gave us, you know, varied worlds, multiple power-ups, complex environments, and just a huge assortment of enemies and bosses that made it into one of the most robust games ever made at the time. And so you're dealing with all that stuff, you know, which one would you pick? 
guess maybe I will go with the first one just because it was so influential on anything else. But yeah, all three Super Mario Brothers games are great for different reasons, and they are all still incredible, even all this time later. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, on to our next two reasons. Numbers four and five are the Zelda series, the original Legend of Zelda and Zelda II The Adventure of Link. And once again, these also set new standards in gaming. The original Zelda gave birth to one of gaming's most beloved franchises and created this sense of wonder and exploration and discovery that's you know basically unmatched even now. Like Super Mario Brothers, it felt like a game where anything was possible, you know? Have you burned this bush? Have you pushed this tombstone? Have you gone behind the waterfall? Have you bombed this rock? And, you know, appropriately, it really is the stuff of legends. I like how you put that, you know, you look at video games now and and video games after Zelda, and it really did become, you know, this quest to find the next little hidden secret. Mm -hmm. And Zelda did kick that off in, in a major way, and you can't explain enough to newcomers to gaming what a big deal that was yeah it was really amazing at the time you know being a kid like on the schoolyard and you're just sharing all this stuff with your friends there and you're like oh you can do that can you really do that oh there's a thing over there and the way it turned a single player game into sort of a social game through that was really remarkable and you know it's funny too because you know going back to the idea that you know a lot of newcomers to gaming can't kind of appreciate this type of thing there was no google back then you know you couldn't right. i mean nintendo power was your resource you know the nintendo fun club i think at that point still mm-hmm. but that was your resource because you'd talk to somebody on the playground or in the schoolyard and they would be completely full of it um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes that was true. And you could never call them out on it if you didn't know. You know, a lot of times you just kind of have to nod and agree. And then, you know, you'd go home and you'd find out and you go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and you know, kids don't really have that now. <laughs> it's true. If someone is full of BS on Zelda, you can uh, usually just uh, look it up online and be like, nah, that's totally wrong. But back then, you never really knew. It seemed like anything was possible. And with that game, you know, it's almost true. But then after that, we had Zelda 2. And that was a personal favorite of mine that combined the exploration-based Zelda formula with side-scrolling action and emphasis on spells and sword play and platforming. And back then, I always preferred side-scrolling games to a top-down presentation, so it was right up my alley. It was like they made that game just for me, and not only did I love the gameplay, but I thought it was one of the best-looking NES games. You know, it's known for being very, very tough as well, but I thought that game was awesome regardless. You know, that was actually my first Zelda. I didn't get the original Zelda until much later. Mm -hmm. So that was my introduction to the Zelda series. And it was very intimidating at that age. And I didn't gain as much of an appreciation for it until later. But um, I really like how Nintendo at that point was really changing up the format of their sequels. You know, Mm -hmm. you look at Super Mario Brothers 2, which again, you know, it was a reskin of Doki Doki Panic, but it was so experimental. And then you have Zelda 2, which is just so different from the first Zelda. Yeah, back then there were no rules in place about what a sequel had to be. There was no formula they definitely had to adhere to, and it made for a very exciting time in gaming. Yeah, absolutely. All right, on to number six, Fantastic Controllers. You can't really talk about the NES without talking about its controllers because the basic NES controller, that little rectangle, and you know, I know I kind of sound like a broken record here, it redefined gaming once again. 
you know, before that, it was all these squishy joysticks, but suddenly, you know, the plus-shaped control pad became the standard, and it worked beautifully, and it was so responsive, and the inclusion of a whopping four buttons on this controller made completely new styles of gaming possible. I also feel like it set a standard for Nintendo's real quality of their products Mm -hmm. because, you know, you look at that controller and even today, it's such a durable piece of technology. (laughs) Yes, it is. It has such a heft to it. It has just such a nice feel to it. And it really kind of did. It set us a new standard. You know, it wasn't some flimsy, you know, Atari stick. Right. It was the real deal. And I think it made a big difference in the success of the NES. Yeah, totally. I think that was one of the things that really brought getting back to life was this new style of controls. But you know, then on top of the basic controller, let's not forget about things like the NES Advantage, which was an arcade-style joystick with variable turbo fire and slow-mo, and then also the NES Max, which was my personal go-to controller for the NES. It had separate turbo buttons that let you switch back and forth on the fly, depending on the situation. And then this weird circular cycloid thing that replaced the control pad. And it definitely took some getting used to, but once you figured out how to make it work best, that controller was absolutely amazing. I really like that uh, in the Switch era, it seems like we're getting back to seeing more controller variations after years of, of you know them kind of falling by the wayside because the nes did you were right it did bring all these variants to the table and they might not have always worked the best but they were always really interesting yeah that is true and let me tell you nintendo if you hear this and you want to bring out a version of the nes max for the switch i would be all over that in an instant okay on to entries 7, 8, and 9, Games with Bite. And by that, I'm talking about the Castlevania series. Castlevania 1, Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest, and Castlevania 3, Dracula's Curse. This series from Konami is absolutely legendary. It took classic horror movie monster tropes like mummies and mermen and Frankenstein's monster and Dracula and married it to this deliberately paced, action-packed, whip-cracking gameplay, and they arrived with something truly, truly special. You know, like the Mario series, Castlevania 1 basically set the standard, Castlevania 2 went back to the drawing board and made something completely different and unique, but still very fun and cool, and then Castlevania 3 took the original premise to the next level with better graphics, more complex stages, multiple playable characters, and a deeper overall experience. It's sort of like the ultimate horror movie in interactive form, and there's something very fun about that entire concept. And the gameplay, of course, is about as good as it gets. I mean, the gameplay is just fantastic. You know, after all these years, you know, that Castlevania style just holds up so well. And it's funny, you know, looking back, survival horror wasn't a genre you know at that point no no it wasn't but castlevania kind of started it though you know it it kind of did as much as you could do with the concept of horror on nes and there was kind of a creepiness to it you know that is kind of hard to describe to newcomers but back then it did translate pretty well Yeah, thematically speaking, I'd say there is indeed a connection between Castlevania and modern horror games, but any way you look at it, the Castlevania series is fantastic on NES, plus it has wall meat. Moving on to number 10, co-op shoot-em-ups. 
The NES had fantastic games in just about every genre, but one of my favorites on the system is shooters. We're talking about 2D shooters, of course. And while there were several good ones, the titles that most come to mind for me are the run-and-gun action of the original Contra and the more traditional space shooter fun of Life Force, which was the follow-up to Gradius. And, you know, what's even better than a shooter? Well, it's a shooter that you can play through with a friend. So Contra is easily one of my favorite games on the system and the thrill of just running through eight stages of alien blasting action as a one or two man army is totally unmatched. It has great level designs, a good variety of stages, and of course, awesome weapons like the spread gun and excellent bosses, both of which are key ingredients in a shooter. Life Force, meanwhile, had that innovative power-up system from the Gradius series and this really interesting bio-organic setting. You know, there are some other shooters out there like Super C, which is the sequel to Contra, and they were great as well. But for me, Contra and Life Force are two of the best experiences on the system if you got a butt nearby. I don't have a lot of experience with Life Force, but Contra as a co-op game was just such a big deal. You know, it was so much fun, you know, just grabbing a buddy and and blasting away. Mm -hmm. And it holds up. Yeah, yeah. I was so happy when they finally brought back this NES version of Contra, which had been, you know, pretty much unplayable on modern hardware for years and years. Then the anniversary collection came out. And I was able to play that with friends and family again. And sure, there are those spots like you go up the waterfall and, oh, I killed my friend. Or, you know, you're out of lives like, I'm just going to steal my friend's lives. But that is all part of the fun. It's just, you know, so enjoyable. You know, whether you're skilled or unskilled. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome game. I love it so much. Coming up next at number 11, we have Kirby in Color. So Kirby is most closely associated with the Game Boy, I would say, since that's where he made his debut. But Kirby's Adventure on the NES, I think, was a landmark title as well. It was the first game in which Kirby was in color, the first on a console rather than a handheld system, and most importantly, it's the game that added the copy play mechanics to really flesh out the experience. I mean, Kirby is just, it's so delightful. There's just something so saccharine about Kirby. It's just so (laughs) sweet. And charming. And charming, absolutely. It's funny because those games don't last very long, but you're smiling the whole time. And that's what I love about Kirby. Yeah, for sure. Number 12, we have the robotic operating buddy. That's Rob. And he's an icon, you know? Rob was originally bundled with the NES. He was like this way for Nintendo to say, look, we aren't the same as those past video game systems that, you know, sank the entire industry. No, we're new and different, and we have a robot. And of course, the reality was that Rob, you know, wasn't really that great, and the games that were used with him, Stack Up and Gyro you know, they were, you know, not really that playable. But still, Rob has this retro cool factor that I can't help but love. And regardless of the reality of his games, he helped put the NES on the map. So, you know, big props for that. Rob is such a cool design. You know, it's funny because there's something that's really 80s about it. Yep. But, you know, I was looking at the Rob Amiibo a while back. Amiibo! And it's just, it's a really cool design robot. Like, it holds up, you know, 35 years later. I mean, maybe the actual one doesn't hold up that well. (laughs) But the design is really neat, and I love that it still exists in Smash Brothers. Yeah, you know, he reappeared in Smash Brothers, he reappeared in Kart, 
there's the amiibo, so it's great that Rob is still out there all this time later. Next, number 13, pick up and play sports games. Now, I'm going to admit, I am not the biggest sports gamer, but there is no denying that the NES had some fantastic sports games that appealed to a broad audience, even to non-sports fans like me. The arcadey pick-up-and-play style of a lot of these games create experiences that, to me, you know, more complicated sims really can't match. Like, Mike Tyson's Punch-Out! is obviously one of the all-time greats. It has huge characters, they've got memorable personalities, graphics that were really, really great at the time. Is it really like a boxing game? No, it's actually almost more like a puzzle game. But for people like me, you know, that just reeled us in, even if we didn't really care at all about real boxing. And likewise, games like Pro Wrestling, Ice Hockey, Tecmo Bowl, Track and Field 2, Double Dribble, Blades of Steel, they were all just very, very accessible. You know, I think one thing that's really telling about that era of sports games is that we've seen quite a few indie games that have been trying to replicate that magic. Yeah. Because I think that along the way, a lot of those sports games... I don't want to say lost their way because there's still a big market. I mean, there's a huge market for games like Madden and NHL every year. But when you look at the simplicity of games like ice hockey or, you know, Tecmo Super Bowl or Punch-Out, they still stand the test of time. And I know I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but um, those games really do hold up in their simplicity. And there's a lot of fun to be had in those games. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I were to play a modern sports sim, I would be so overwhelmed, I probably would never even get out of the menu screen. But give me something (laughs) like Pro Wrestling or Track and Field 2, and I'm going to have a blast. I mean, you know, Pro Wrestling may not have had a license like WWF or anything like that, but it was so far ahead of the competition in so many ways. And Track and Field 2 managed to include 15 events, almost all of them were fantastic, uh, even if it did sort of contribute, I think, to a generation of people who are going to have carpal tunnel syndrome from all of the butt mashing involved. (laughs) Okay, on to reason number 14, from Russia with love. And obviously I am talking about Tetris, the legendary puzzle game. Like Kirby, this game is probably better known for its Game Boy incarnation, but the NES is where I was introduced to Tetris and was what made me fall in love with it. I remember Nintendo Power, I think it was the ninth issue, showing Tetris on the cover and having like page after page explaining what Tetris was. And, you know, I looked at that issue and I just could not care less. It said like the most boring thing in the world to me. Like, what is this? All these squares. Why are these squares falling from the sky? I don't know. But, you know, once I finally played it, I absolutely fell in love with it. And I still love this particular NES version. I love the aesthetic, I like the color palette in particular, I love the music, and I love how when you beat level 9, height 5, you get this little ending with all the Nintendo characters playing musical instruments for whatever reason. You know, it's funny, my favorite version of Tetris is actually Tetris DS, which has a really strong connection to the NES, because as you clear the stages, you see the classic NES levels at the on the yeah, bottom yeah. screen clear. And I think that's really cool that they tied that together because, you know, the NES Tetris was the introduction to the series for a lot of people. And it's funny because Tetris does have a very boring aesthetic if you're not familiar with Tetris. So I feel like that was a great hook for it. 
Yeah, for sure. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, the NES version probably was my favorite version of Tetris until Tetris DS came along, but that wasn't until many years later. On to number 15, Grappling with Success. And in this case, I'm referring to Bionic Commando. If you're not familiar with Bionic Commando, it is this sort of non-linear military action-adventure game, but with a twist. Most NES action games followed a very simple but specific formula. One button was jump, one button was attack. But Bionic Commando tossed that out the window. There was no jumping. Instead, you had a grappling hook that you used to swing over obstacles. And you know, as a kid, the first time I played this, it kind of broke my brain. I just really couldn't conceive of not being able to jump over stuff. I'm like, how can you even make a game where you can't jump? It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, once I got practice, once I got used to it, it was just super satisfying, tons of fun, and it certainly managed to stand out from the crowd with its unique gameplay. Yes, having a grappling hook always makes gaming better. Yeah, for sure. On to reason number 16, From the Shadows. You can't really talk about stuff in the 80s without talking about ninjas, and the NES had some great ones. One of the most prominent, of course, is Ninja Gaiden, which is probably the pinnacle of ninja action games. The first game of the series in particular had just such amazing gameplay, awesome music, and it broke new ground with its cinematic presentation. You know, the sequels were maybe better on a technical level, but really nothing beats that first game for me. And then in addition to Ninja Gaiden, we have Shadow of the Ninja, which I think is an extremely underrated NES game. The gameplay isn't quite as crisp as Ninja Gaiden, but it has something that Ninja Gaiden does not, and that is two-player co-op. It also has some varied weapons and a cool power-up system, plus some awesome bosses and great visual. It's a classic from Natsume. Limited Run Games actually just did a collector's edition repro cart, and you had better believe I ordered one of those. Ninja Gaiden, one of the things that I really like about it is it really pushed what the NES could do graphic-wise. I think when you look at those games, they really started to push the boundaries of the 8-bit format in a really big way. Yeah, those cutscenes just looked so good back in the day. But before we depart from our discussion on ninjas, I do want to give a shout-out to another ninja that is Hiryu from Capcom's Strider. And, you know, I'm not really sure if he counts as a ninja, but he does have a lightning-fast blade, and he can jump off walls, and he wears a mask. So I'm going to count him as a ninja in this case. You know, this Capcom classic was completely different from the arcade version, but it was just, you know, a whole bunch of fun as here you traveled the globe and uncovered this brainwashing conspiracy. It's a little rough in some areas, but uh, while I'm talking about awesome ninjas, I do want to put Strider out there. He is a personal favorite of mine. I think Strider definitely has to qualify. All right. I'm glad you approve. All right, on to reason number 17, RPG Origins. Yes, the NES was home to the first installments of both Dragon Quest, aka Dragon Warrior here in North America, and Final Fantasy. Now, granted, these franchises, when they first started back in the NES era, were mere shadows of what they are now. You know, the first Dragon Warrior didn't even have a party system. If I recall correctly, it was just, you know, the one hero having to do everything all by himself. But still, you know, this was essentially the origin of Japanese console RPGs, and it was the introduction to that style of gameplay for a lot of players. So 
even though I personally didn't really get into RPGs until the 16-bit era, I really appreciate what they pioneered with the NES. Like you, I, I didn't get into the genre until much later. I probably actually, for me, it was the PlayStation era that was my mm. real introduction to you know the RPG format. But you're right. I mean, you have to give it to both Square and Enix and what they did. Yeah, RPGs would not be where they are today without the progress those series made on the NES. And we are about halfway through our list now. So I think, if it's okay with you, we are going to take a little intermission. Sounds good to me. So we'll do that, and then when we come back, we will continue counting down our 35 reasons we love the NES. We are back, and we are ready to continue our discussion of the 35 reasons that we still love the NES 35 years later. Specifically, we are going to continue with entry number 18, and that is the fact that the NES was a cultural phenomenon. You know, the amazing thing about that system and Nintendo of that era was how it was so much more than, you know, just the system and games. It became a bonafide, you know, phenomenon. You know, there were toys, there was merchandise, there were bed sheets, there were counters, there was all kinds of stuff. You know, some of it was a little bit wonky and off-model and maybe off-brand a little bit, but it was still really cool. I mean, I know the Atari did the same thing, there was Pac-Man fever and all that before the NES, but just seeing how much stuff Nintendo got out there as well was just really, really amazing. I kind of miss some of that stuff being off model a little bit, you know? (laughs) I think there was a little more charm to it back then. One of my most prized Nintendo possessions is I still have an applause Mario doll Uh that I got circa, I want to say it was 1989 or 1990 for Christmas. And, I mean, it is one of my most cherished Nintendo objects. You know, Mario's got a giant nose, you know, he, he doesn't look quite the way, you know, we, mm-hmm. we see him now. Right. But that's part of the charm of it. Yeah, I suppose that is true. And then one of the other things that I really loved from that era were the Super Mario Brothers 3 Happy Meal toys. Ah. That was the first video game that I can ever remember there being actual hype for. You know, it's funny, nowadays, you know, we have years of build-up and, and you know, mm-hmm. teases and trailers for trailers but mcdonald's toys that was such a big deal i can still remember sitting at mcdonald's and getting the raccoon mario toy and thinking like this is a big deal like this was the first time i knew about a game before it was coming (laughs) out i cannot say i specifically remember those but that does sound pretty cool for sure 
My personal favorite bit of uh, you know merchandise, so to speak, from this era was the Nintendo serial system. You know, it was uh, half Mario serial, half Zelda serial, and pretty much all gross, but I love the fact that it exists. A lot of those licensed serials were always terrible, but there was still <laughs> a reason that you had to buy it. And you, know, you got to love that theme song, you know. Nintendo, it's for breakfast now. Nintendo, it's a cereal. Wow. Nintendo, Super Mario jumps. Nintendo in a fruit flavored crunch. That was very impressive. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, with that, I believe it is time to move on to number 19 on the list, which is the legendary Space Hunter. Of course, I'm talking about Metroid, the start of a very classic video game series that all started here on the NES. You know, I feel like even now, Metroid doesn't really get the love it deserves from Nintendo, but, I mean, you've got to admit, it is one of the most influential games ever made. You know, that combination of action and exploration and character growth and upgrades that expand your abilities and allow you to explore the map even further has basically become a staple of 2D gaming and a genre onto itself. And, you know, let's not forget how moody and atmospheric this game is or how cool and mysterious Samus looked compared to other characters. I mean, she has a freaking gun arm that just looked amazing. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, Metroid, Samus, it all started right here on the NES. What's fascinating about Metroid is if you look at it, all the core elements of the series are right there from the start. This is true. I mean, you look at Super Metroid, you even look at Metroid Prime, and all those key ingredients are right there in the original game. Mm -hmm. And it's just such an atmospheric, wonderful experience. Yeah, this is true. The one ingredient that was missing, I suppose, was a map, but you know, you got to leave a little bit of room for improvement, I guess. All right, well, the, you, you didn't have the map. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> okay, on to number 20, the little angel that could, and I'm talking about Pit in Kid Icarus. Uh, maybe not quite as classic as Metroid. Obviously, Kid Icarus hasn't been like a huge success story, but, you know, for the NES... You know, it was pretty huge back in the day. You know, it was right up there with Metroid and Mario and Zelda and Punch-Out as like a top-tier first-party franchise. Or it wasn't even a franchise back then. Top-tier first-party game. And by giving it that silver adventure series box and you know, having it come out very close to Metroid, it just seemed extra cool. You know, it was sort of like the fantasy companion to Metroid's sci-fi coolness. But the truth is, it was a very different game, with these vertically scrolling levels that were surprisingly challenging. And then in addition, it did have you know side-scrolling stages and maze-like dungeons. And I feel like maybe we have yet to see the ultimate realization of the Kid Icarus concept, you know, maybe the full potential. But the NES game is no doubt a classic. You know, I was just going to say that I feel like Kid Icarus's best days are yet to come. You know, you look at where Metroid Prime eventually brought the Metroid franchise. I think Kid Icarus is still waiting on that. And I think you'll see it one day, honestly. I hope so. I hope so. But uh, for now, I'm just glad that uh, we can still play the NES version on things like Nintendo Switch Online. Okay, reason number 21, Awesome Rides. 
There were some great methods of transportation on the NES. You know, you could drive a Ferrari and Rad Racer. You could compete in motocross with Excite Bike. You know, those were both, you know, very fun, excellent games. But the coolest vehicle of all, I think, was Sophia the Third in Blaster Master, which was this sort of car-tank hybrid that the hero Jason uses to go underground and fight mutants because he lost his pet frog. And yes, that is an NES-era story if there ever was one. But the game is great, the vehicle is awesome, it has this very Metroid-like progression, and you get to drive up walls, hover, get new weapons. This game is a blast, uh, pun completely intended. And it's finally starting to get a, a little more recognition with some modern sequels, which is really nice to see. Yeah, I mean, Blaster Master, I don't feel like it was an obscure game back in the day. But yeah, with Blaster Master Zero and Blaster Master Zero Two both out there on Switch, yeah, it's great to see that the series is still continuing even now. Number 22 on the list, Shoot to Thrill. Another great accessory, I'm talking about the Zapper. This was a light gun that very much added a new dimension to gaming and made the NES feel a whole lot more robust, much in the same way that Rob did. You know, granted, none of the games were, like, mind-blowing, but stuff like Duck Hunt and Hogan's Alley, Wild Gunman, Gumshoe, even the light gun mode in Track and Field 2 were still a whole lot of fun to play. Duck Hunt remains one of my all-time favorite NES games. I know it's a little repetitive. I know you can only put so much time into it. And it makes you want to shoot the dog. But man, there was something so cool about the Zapper. And there was something so cool about Duck Hunt. And, you know, my version of the NES came packaged with Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers on one cartridge. Mm -hmm. Which alone right there was kind of mind-blowing that you yeah. had these two huge games together. To me, that's still one of the coolest experiences. You know, that Zapper, playing that for the first time, it was really mind-blowing. Yeah, I have to agree. Now, did you have the orange Zapper or the gray Zapper? I had the gray Zapper. Yeah, okay, living on the edge, I see. I did have friends with the orange one, though. Okay. All right, moving on to reasons 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28, the Mega Man series. Talking about Mega Man's 1 through 6, and in my opinion, one of the best game series ever made, had six mainline installments on the NES. No secret, I absolutely adore this series, and I think that all six of those entries are wonderful. You know, it's just a great premise, being able to steal your enemy's weapons and use them against other enemies. And then on top of that, the graphics were excellent, the music is spectacular, the controls are spot on, and the level design is just about perfect. You know, granted, each game of the series doesn't really deviate much from the formula, but, you know, when the formula is already that good, I don't see any reason to mess with success. As listeners may recall, my favorite game in the series is Mega Man 2. I just thought it was a huge step up over the first, and it has one of my favorite soundtracks ever, as well as one of my favorite final bosses ever, but there is basically no bad stuff here. It is good gaming all the way around. To me, the Mega Man series always kind of gets meshed together because there wasn't a ton of deviation between them. But the thing about Mega Man, like you said, all of those games are so good. Yes. So, I mean, it's hard to use that as a knock against it because, I mean, Capcom just knocked it out of the park with each entry. Yeah, I'm sure some people at the time thought the idea was getting a little stale by the time Mega Man 6 arrived. But looking back, 
These are some of the best games on the system, and they still hold up really, really well even now. On to entry number 29, Know the Code. One of the fun things about the NES era of gaming was codes. You know, almost every game, it seemed, had a secret code of some sort. You know, Super Mario Brothers had a continue code. Zelda had a code to let you go straight to the second quest. Metroid had the Justin Bailey code. But, of course, the best code of all was the Konami code. You know, if you don't know what up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA is, well, you know, man, you missed out. Uh, specifically, you missed out on a full slate of power-ups in Gradius and 30 extra lives in Contra. But, you know, that code still lives on even today in, like, other pop culture things. You know, these days it seems like codes are a lost art and you just unlock extra things and cheats by playing through the game as you normally would. But, man, back then, codes were everywhere and they were just a fun little extra that added replay value and made you fire up some games like, oh, I'm done with this, but oh, there's a code that I learned about in some magazine. You know, let's check it out again. But uh, yeah, codes were great and knowledge is power. Absolutely. Codes really were the original replay value for games. Because like you said, you'd get a, a gaming magazine and all of a sudden you'd be digging out, you know, an NES game that you hadn't played in months because you had to try this code out. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, you look at Game Genie. <laughs> that was such a big deal back in the day. You know, this idea that you could just plug in, you know, any game that you had and there were just tons of codes and half of them weren't that good. But that wasn't <laughs> the point. The point was it was codes. Codes were a big deal. Yes. Yes, they were. Number 30, Licensed Gems. Now, licensed games were very much a mixed bag on the NES. There were a lot of awful licensed games, you know, just off the top of my head. TNC Surf Designs, Friday the 13th, The Uncanny X-Men, Back to the Future, uh, The Simpsons, Bart vs. the Space Mutants, uh, just basically anything from LJN, uh, the original TMNT, in my opinion. But the flip side of that is there were also some amazing licensed games, which is what this category is all about. And in that case, I'm talking about things like TMNT 2, the arcade game, TMNT 3, the Manhattan Project, DuckTales, Rescue Rangers, G.I. Joe, Batman, Goonies 2. They were all standouts as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I didn't even like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or DuckTales back then, but I found the games, I loved the games, they turned me on to those properties, and that goes to show just how a great licensed game in the hands of the right developer could be awesome. You know, I was a little bit younger in the NES era, so licensed games were my bread and butter. And <laughs> I played a lot of really terrible licensed games back in the day, but Amazing. there are a lot that stick out that still hold up like DuckTales. DuckTales yeah. really is one of, I think Capcom's best NES games. And I know that that's oh, for sure. a bold statement, but it's fantastic. No, it's totally true. Absolutely. And then, you know, I really liked uh, rescue Rangers a lot, but um, you, you got to hand it to Konami with the second and third teenage mutant Ninja turtle games, because yes. those were just a blast. And I'm totally with you on the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> One of the biggest heartbreaks of my life because that game was horrible. <laughs> that water level was just, as a kid, it, it was awful. Uh, yeah, I did not care for that so much myself. But 
the great thing is they really made up for it with TMNT 2 and TMNT 3. Just love jumping up and smacking guys in the face or throwing them over your shoulder, you know, surfing and fighting the Foot Clan. Yeah, those games were just so much fun. Really, really good stuff. And it set the stage for Konami's best Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game, which was Turtles in Time on the Super Nintendo. That is one of my favorites. Outside the scope of this episode, but still one of my favorites. Okay, entry number 31, The Power of the Punch. And now, talking about beat-em-ups. You know, I think maybe the true beat-em-up golden era came probably a few years later, maybe in the 16-bit era, but there were still some really excellent beat-em-ups on the NES. To me, the particular standouts were Double Dragon 1 and 2, River City Ransom, and Mighty Final Fight. The Double Dragon games, you know, they made a lot of changes compared to the arcade versions. They add a greater emphasis on platforming. You know, the first one didn't even have a co-op mode, but it did have like some RPG elements. But anyway, they were still, you know, a whole lot of fun. And River City Ransom, you know, it was an original experience built from the ground up that was all about RPG elements, as well as non-linearity, and it really helped that one stand out from the crowd even years later. And as for Mighty Final Fight, it was like this comical take on my all-time favorite beat-em-up Final Fight, with these, you know, cutesy, chibi characters and simplified gameplay, and, you know, all these comedic elements, like, you know, you would talk to the first boss, he'd be like, you know, bow down before me, you could say yes or no, and if you said no, he would, like, lose a chunk of health before you even fought him. <laughs> and, you know, aside from that, it had all the pile drivers and uppercuts a player could possibly want. So, yeah, some great beat-em-ups on the NES. I think one of the things that's happened since the NES era is that a lot of these franchises that haven't gotten a lot of recognition over the years have kind of disappeared, and you've lost track of franchises like Double Dragon that were a really big deal. I know that Double Dragon Neon recently came out on Nintendo Switch, but Double Dragon hasn't held up as a franchise it hasn't gotten as many entries over the years. And Double Dragon was a really big deal back in the day. It was. It was huge. It was like the number one arcade game back at the time. And I feel like a lot of people don't have that appreciation for it anymore. And that's kind of sad. Well, the good news is that the genre is enjoying something of a resurgence these days. Disclaimer, I work for Way Forward, which developed Double Dragon Neon and River City Girls, the follow-ups to these classics. Plus, the original NES titles are readily available on Switch, either standalone or in collections or via Nintendo Switch Online, so I encourage people to go check them out for some bare-knuckle fun. On to entry number 32, Rare Coin It. Yeah, developer Rare. They, you know, really, I think, rose to prominence during the Super NES and Nintendo 64 days with stuff like Donkey Kong Country, Banjo-Kazooie, Goldeneye, of course, but they made a ton of stuff on the NES. They had original games, they had ports, they had licensed games, you know, everything from RC Pro-Am and Cobra Triangle and WrestleMania to Marble Madness, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Pinbot, Captain Skyhawk, Solar Jetman, Who Friend Roger Rabbit, the list just goes on and on. I think they probably had like, you know, 40, 50 games they made for the NES. To me, the ultimate rare game in the NES era was Battletoads. I loved yes. Battletoads. Battletoads was such a hard game. It was. But I still loved it. 
yeah, I mean, that game was really, really great despite its high level of challenge. Just this awesome platformer beat-em-up hybrid that seemed to take a lot of inspiration from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But it really pushed the system, I think, to new limits. Also pushed players to new limits, if you know what I mean. That darn bike racing stage. You'll never convince me anybody ever beat it off. <laughs> It is tough. It is very, very tough. But in addition to Battletoads, the other game or series I would like to give a shout out to from Rare is Wizards and Warriors. That was just one that I had as a kid and it was really, really fun. And, you know, it was this medieval uh, swords and sorcery kind of thing, action adventure where you're collecting gems and exploring these environments. And I just had a blast playing that one, as well as its sequel, which was Iron Sword which not only was very, very ambitious, but is noteworthy for being, I believe, the only NES game with Fabio on the box. And I still remember seeing that advertisement all over the back of comic books back in the day. (laughs) That was everywhere. Yeah, that one really, really got around. Anyway, Rare made a ton of great stuff. Uh, They also made stuff that wasn't great, but still, they were a huge part of the NES experience, and I love a lot of what they put out on that system. On to reason number 33... TV, and beyond. You know, we talked about licensed products earlier. We hinted a little bit about some of the multimedia ventures that came out of this era. But in addition to you know physical products, the NES worked its way into television and movies. You know, the quality is kind of debatable, but there is still something amazing and nostalgic about the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, The Legend of Zelda cartoon, Captain N the Game Master, which gave us a green Mega Man and a blue King Hippo with giant nipples, and let us not forget the live-action Super Mario Brothers movie. The Super Mario Brothers Super Show was such a big part of my fandom. It doesn't hold up at all whatsoever. (laughs) No. But I don't think that I would be the Nintendo fan that I am if not for that show. There was a real novelty to seeing, you know, Mario and Luigi and the princess and Toad, you know, every day after school. Then there was Captain N, which, again, not good. In fact, I think (laughs) that Captain N actually makes the Super Mario Brothers Super Show look better. But um, there was something really cool about it, too. I love the jacket. I love the character design. I would love to see the character appear in Smash Brothers. It'll never happen. Mm. But uh, there was something really neat about the Captain N concept. And I would love to see it revisited in some way. Yeah, I think it was a really interesting concept. Not such a great show. You know, I did a whole big topic about Captain N a few years ago. I did a whole big topic on uh, the Zelda cartoon sometime last year, and then as well as a feature-length commentary on the Super Mario Brothers movie during its last major anniversary. During all those, I drank way too much milk, so uh, (laughs) I'm not really sure what else I can say about those pieces of media that I haven't already said, except, you know, the fact that they exist really says something about the influence of the NES. Definitely. On to number 34, The Exploding Hamster. There is only one game I know of on the NES that has an exploding hamster, and it is a personal favorite of mine. It is Maniac Mansion. And for people who aren't familiar, that game was this point-and-click adventure poured from PC, and it was awesome. And funny, and clever, and it had excellent music, and great puzzles, and yes, it had an exploding hamster. You could put the hamster in the microwave, 
and make it explode. Now, Hoff, I was a subscriber to Nintendo Power from 1999 until it ended. Mm -hmm. And one thing I distinctly remember you saying is that with Maniac Mansion, you felt so guilty about exploding the hamster that you had to go back and restart your file. Is that true? Well, I just had to hit the reset button, so I ended up going back to whatever my last save spot was. But yeah, I did probably lose a couple hours of progress. Fortunately, with a game like Maniac Mansion, you know, it's all about you know puzzle solving and things like that. So once I knew what to do, it probably wasn't too hard to get back to that point. But yes, I felt very guilty about blowing up that poor little hamster. And moving on to our last entry, number 35, it is Nintendo Power. You know, I said earlier that if it weren't for the NES and Super Mario Brothers, I wouldn't be here talking about games right now. But to take things a step further, I also would not be here if it weren't for Nintendo Power Magazine. You know, that was basically my life from 2005 to 2012. But back when that magazine launched during the NES era in 1988, it was basically a portal to another world. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, there was no internet. There were no Nintendo Directs. If you wanted new information, you know, directly to you from Nintendo, Nintendo Power was the place to get it. Basically, if you got Nintendo Power, you were in the cool kids club at school. Everybody who didn't get it wanted to read your copy and see the latest games and to learn the latest secrets. It was, you know, the place for the Nintendo community. And of course, you know, for me, it turned into so much more. And it was only possible because of the success of the NES. You know, like I said before, I didn't subscribe till 1999. I actually uh, got in on a special E3 Pikachu card and never left. <laughs> but Nintendo Power really was this big deal. You know, I remember getting a couple issues here and there or, or reading my cousin's copies. And there was just something that was distinctive about it compared to other gaming magazines at the time. Maybe it was the fact that it solely focused on Nintendo products, but there was just, there was a quality to it. There was a heft to the magazine itself, like the physical heft of the magazine. And there was just something really special about that magazine from the time it started till the time it ended. And uh, I don't think uh, a lot of us would be Nintendo fans without it. Yes, obviously, I very much have to agree. Also, got to give a shout out to Nintendo Power's predecessor, the Fun Club News. But yeah, with uh, that said, that takes care of our list, our 35 reasons that we love the NES 35 years later. I mean, I think we cheated a lot on the math there, but it was still, nonetheless, a fun excuse to take a tour down memory lane and look back at some of our favorite 8-bit highlights. And I have to say, it's making me want to uh, go play a couple. Yeah, I know. As soon as we end this podcast, I'm going to have to go uh, fire up my NES and uh, blow up a hamster or two. <laughs> but yeah, that pretty much brings this special episode to a close. But, you know, I think before we go, we do have time for one more little thing. And that is a dramatic reading. This time, it comes from the back of the box of the NES Deluxe Set. The Nintendo Entertainment System Deluxe Set is revolutionary because it's the only home video system that is really interactive. No other video system features ROM, 
the wireless video robot who plays games right along with you, or the Zapper, the amazing light-sensing gun that puts sharpshooting accuracy right in the palm of your hand. This extraordinary pair of video partners interacts with you and the screen, allowing you hands-on video action. What's more, because most Nintendo Game Packs can be played by two people at the same time, you can enjoy head-to-head -head video matchups. The entire family will enjoy home video entertainment like never before. Because never before has there been anything like the Nintendo Entertainment System. The Nintendo Entertainment System Deluxe Set comes complete with everything you need for the ultimate in home video entertainment. Hoff, I got goosebumps there. <laughs> you know, I think maybe I did as well. I mean, I think it probably oversells some aspects a little bit, but uh, I gotta admit, it certainly makes the NES sound very, very cool. Rob, too. <laughs> yep, Rob and the Zapper. I'm not sure that most games are really two players either, but, uh, you know, not too bad, all things considered. They fudged the numbers a little bit, that's alright. Eh, who doesn't from time to time? Anyhow, I think that does it for this special episode of Power Pros. Thank you very much for uh, joining us, everybody. Not sure if or when we'll be back again, but nonetheless, you can reach us at PowerProsPod on Twitter, as well as via email at PowerProsPod at gmail.com. You can also reach me personally on Twitter via at ChrisTheHoff, and you can find Mark at MarkTheChamp. For myself, Mark Deschamps. Thanks for having me, Chris. And our good friend, the announcer from Gauntlet 2. Welcome, Riddle. Keep on playing with Pat.